So, today we want to cover the last seven or eight verses in chapter 12. Before we do, I'll do a bit of a summary of what we've done so far to tie it all together. Anti-Semitism is the hatred of the Jews, and we went into that quite a bit last week. And just as a general revision, Revelation chapters 6 through 19 describe what particular time period. Seven year tribulation. Luke's been listening. That's good. All right. And some chapters move the story forwards, and they talk about the events in the tribulation, what happens in chronological order, and others simply describe the people, events, and organizations that are a part of or play a role in the seven year tribulation period. We call them vignettes because they're a story that gives you information. Now, chapter 12 is one of the descriptive stories or vignettes that takes a step back and gives us a big picture concerning Satan and his ongoing war with and persecution of Israel. And following on from that, the church. Okay? And it starts right back at Christ's first coming, and then it goes through and it finishes in future events in the second coming. Another reminder is John wrote the book of Revelation using signs and symbols that any Christian who reads their Bible can figure out. Is that good? All right. What's the tool that we have these days that we can use that makes it really easy to find things in the Bible? It starts with C. Concordance. Very good. Okay. You look up. The words like dragon or stars, moon, etc. And, oh, there it is in Genesis or where we found it. So each sign or symbol has a literal meaning. It's like a code that just needs to be unlocked or deciphered before it can be read. That way, the message would be clearly understood by sincere believers in the church who use the correct method of interpretation, which we talked about last week. However, the message remains hidden from the world. Now, at the time, John wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, and if the Romans knew that he was describing the downfall of their nation, <laughs> they would have killed him. Okay, They were very jealous of their power. So it was hidden. The meaning was hidden with these signs and symbols because they didn't understand the Old Testament and they wouldn't be able to interpret the symbols, and then they wouldn't get the main message of the book. So, last week, in Revelation 12, verse 10, it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before. Our God day and night has been cast down. So, what we did last week, we learned that even now, even today, Satan has access to God's presence and spends much of his time condemning us or accusing us. We learn that we are saved by the... What are we saved by? Saved by grace. What did Jesus shed for us? His blood. We're saved by the blood of Jesus. We were reminded that a true believer is someone who has repented of their sins. We learn that Jesus is our defense lawyer in heaven, who defends us from Satan's constant attacks, and the basis of his defense on our behalf is that the penalty for our sins, which is what? 
Spiritual death or eternal separation from God has been paid in full. Therefore, we can be declared innocent. We are justified. As we said before, it's justified, never sinned. It's awesome. And the example there is, it's like being found guilty of drunk driving, but then set free because your fine has been paid in advance. So you go to the courtroom and it's just like a formality. And that's like what we do when we come and confess. The sin has already been paid for. The penalty has already been paid for. And that is the case for everyone who has repented and asked God to forgive them. They have been adopted into God's family and belong to God. We also learn that at the halfway point of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven permanently. Then for the last three and a half years of earth history as we know it, with human government, Satan will be allowed to overcome the saints and will cause havoc. It'll be just a bloodbath. But at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom and Satan is bound for a thousand years. So one of the main points from last week is that teaching or ideas has consequences. When we don't correctly interpret scripture, we often come to the wrong conclusions and therefore the wrong applications. So I just wanted to jump into Romans 9, 1-5 to because it gives an example of what our attitude should be. Last week I described what their attitude shouldn't be, but I don't think I did a good job at describing what their attitude should be towards the Jewish nation. So here's Paul's attitude towards the Jewish nation. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. That's Mount Sinai. And God gave the Ten Commandments to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshipping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he, Jesus, is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So, Paul interprets prophecy literally. He still considers the Jews as God's chosen people. He has a deep concern for them. Why? He wants them to be saved. He loves them. He would do anything for them. He is grateful to them because it is through the nation of Israel that we have the scriptures, that we have our Messiah, we have all these promises. And also, last week we went through how well-meaning theologians in the third and following centuries stopped interpreting prophecy literally and invented what we call now replacement theology. And they falsely taught that the church has replaced Israel because God rejected Israel when they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so their attitude toward the Jews radically changed. The Jews were now seen as the Christ killers, rejected by God and done away with forever. There's no mercy, there's no compassion, there's no favour towards the Jews. And that led to those three things. The three anti-Jewish policies that go round and round and round in a cyclical nature. Conversion, stop calling yourself a Jew and convert to our religion or move out. Or expulsion, if you're a Jew, you have no right to live among us at all. 
or there's annihilation. If you're a Jew, you're not fit to live. And that cycle has gone on for almost 2,000 years. And as we looked at last week, the church was responsible for justifying, not doing, but justifying many of the horrors committed against the Jews over the last 2,000 years or so. So remember in Germany, they were holding up Martin Luther's book, what was it called? On the Jews and their lies. 65,000 words. That's a lot of words. He put a lot of effort into that. He must have been really quite angry with the Jews. So on the Jews and their lies. Denouncing the Jews. And Hitler and his friends were waving this book around and saying, look, we're only doing what the Bible tells us to do to destroy the Jews. Luther, the great man of God, wrote it down in black and white. But how wrong Martin Luther and the other church fathers were all because I didn't interpret the Bible correctly. In particular, they didn't interpret prophecy literally. So, false teaching. That's one of Satan's favorite tricks to cause pain, to break up the church, to try and destroy God's plans. And he's been very successful. And you know the Bible has a great emphasis on eliminating false teaching in the church. Why? Because it hurts them. So there's two main ways that false teaching hurts people. One, it either destroys them. Like, if you're sick and you don't get healed, it means you don't have enough faith. You're worthless and you're a bad person. And people get crushed by that kind of false teaching. Or, let's say, just be happy. If you feel good, it means you're in good standing with God. And so they remain baby Christians and they never grow up. And that's the result of that kind of false teaching. They never mature in their relationship with God. They never make a real difference in this world. They never learn to overcome sin. And they, assuming they're true Christians, they'll get to heaven, but not have much to show for the time spent here down on earth. There will be regrets. So false teaching causes that. So the solution is not just to go to a church that teaches through the Bible and interprets it literally, but also to read and study it for yourself. Whose responsibility is your eternal destiny and your eternal reward? Yeah, that's right. So in the end, you are responsible for what you believe, how you live, and how much you enjoy your relationship with God. So I want to put up 2 Timothy chapter 2, 15 to 19, and just read some of those verses. It says, work hard. Is this going to be an easy process? <laughs> no. You're going to put time and effort into this, right? Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive whose approval? His approval. Okay? Not the world's approval. His approval. Be a good worker. Now, what's the definition of a good worker? One who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains or interprets the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer. False teaching spreads like cancer. And down to verse 19, but God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. Again, if you're following the Lord, if you're listening to him, then you will turn away from evil. And the secret of not being ashamed before God is based on two things, in my opinion. Okay, Based on those verses, read and know your Bible. And secondly, Obey what you know. You need to put it into practice. Because if you know it, but you don't do it, 
It's pretty useless. Reading your Bible and growing in your understanding of it will show you what God expects of you. Then it becomes your logical or reasonable service or sacrifice to give up those things that you're doing wrong and change them to do the right things instead. And that's uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So let's start in chapter 12 now. I'm just going to quickly summarize what we've already covered in the first 12 verses or so and then dig into the last few. So remember that in the Bible, signs and symbols are pictures or types. They give meaning and insight. And the signs and symbols in chapter 12 are the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. Yep, that's right. The dragon represents Satan. The man-child represents Jesus. The angel Michael. Yep, head of the angelic host. The good angels who didn't rebel against God. And the offspring of the woman, yeah, the Gentiles and probably the Jews who had come to faith during the tribulation. So let's go into Revelation chapter 12. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Who's that? Israel, that's good. And we went back into Genesis to find that out. It was Joseph's dream. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. Who did she give birth to? The Messiah. Good. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. We'll go through that next week. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What's that referring to? When Satan rebelled, he didn't rebel alone. A third of the angels, one third of the angels rebelled at the same time as he did. They're his angels. He drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. When was that fulfilled? When Christ was born... Satan used King Herod to try and destroy the male child, the Messiah, who came through Mary and Joseph, through the nation of Israel. Now, we transfer from the past in verse 5 to to the future in verse 6. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, we've gone forward a couple of thousand years at least, And we're in the tribulation. This is the midpoint of the tribulation, we'll find out later. So the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We'll go into where that place is today. Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the dragon is Satan. Bright red dragon is fearful, dangerous, angry. That's what Satan is. This war happens at the halfway point of the tribulation. So for the last half of the tribulation, Satan no longer has access to heaven, and he's really, really angry. He's fuming. 
he's raging and God gives him the leeway to attack those who believe. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. We talked about that last week. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And now let's go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So how did the tribulation believers overcome Satan? It was by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So what this means is when they were given the ultimatum, worship God or worship Satan, you know, take the mark or don't take the mark and die, they chose to stand up for Jesus. I believe in Jesus. And God gave them the grace and courage they needed to boldly stand up for the truth that they believed. What was that truth? That when they die, they go to heaven. It's the ultimate test of faith when you're martyred. I really believe that what Jesus did for me was real. I've made right with God, and heaven is real. Jesus is waiting for me. Okay, I'm willing to give up my life. Now, as an application for us, when your life is at stake, God will give you the strength to stand for him, to be faithful unto death. Now, it might not be <laughs> that we have to die to show our loyalty to Jesus. Sometimes there's going to be situations where God will give you the strength to stand up and do what is right, even though it's really difficult. And here's a hint. If you live your life to glorify God, then in death you'll also glorify him. If you are faithful in life, then you'll be faithful in death. God won't let you down. The way you prepare yourself in the good times, in the easy times, will determine how you react in the difficult times. And that's true for all the millions who have been martyred up to the present day, the tens or hundreds of thousands of Christians who are martyred at the present time each year. So let's keep going in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So those in the heavens, yes, Satan no longer has access to heaven. It's soon to come where Jesus is going to come down to the earth and rule and reign, and Satan is going to be locked up the end of all this. Terrible stuff that's happening. But <laughs> woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. I'm just going to read to the end so we get the context. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. But the woman, Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. From the presence of the serpent, that's Satan. So the serpent spewed out water, spewed water out of his mouth like a flood. So it's a picture, not literal. It's like a flood. After the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring to keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to verse 12, and we'll go verse by verse 
to finish this off. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. So we know from last week, that verses 7 to 9, that this battle happens at the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. Michael and his angels fight with Satan and his angels, and Michael wins. Now this is a battle that happens in the heavenly realms. We're not going to see this on earth. Satan has been permanently barred from having access to heaven at this time, but it will have big consequences for the people on earth. Now I want to focus in on what does it mean when it says he knows that he has a short time? It says he has great wrath because he knows he has a short time. A short time until what? Why would this make him so angry? Well, let's go to Matthew 8.29. It says, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time so jesus is talking to the man he's gone across the lake he's gone to the decapolis the ten cities there and this guy's got two thousand demons in him at least and these demons are talking to jesus they're responding to jesus and they say have you come here to torment us before the time what time well even the devil and his demons know that there is a time when they will be judged. They do lots of bad stuff. They're going to be judged for doing all that bad stuff. They already know that they only have a limited time before they lose their freedom to cause chaos and destruction, before they will be judged and cast into the lake of fire, where they will be tormented forever and ever. Now, did you realize that the lake of fire was never prepared for people? It was never made for people? but rather only for the fallen angels or demons. So how do we know? Matthew twenty four forty one. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, those who are unbelievers, you cursed, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the lake of fire was prepared for Satan, the fallen angels. People can go there if they want to. But God doesn't want them to go there. God paid everybody's penalty for their sins. Nobody has to go to hell. Nobody has to go to the lake of fire. The only reason they do is because they refuse to repent of their sin. So God kind of put, I think, this is from the Lord, put on my heart talk about repentance. I really want us to understand more about repentance. And I've got a couple of examples from the Gospels. First, just to show that being saved is more than just a prayer. It's actually a change in attitude. So John three eighteen to 21, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. So, there's only one thing you need to do to be saved, and that is to believe in God's one only Son. And verse 19 continues, And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light for their actions were evil. So why didn't they believe, or why do not some people believe in God's one only Son and receive the forgiveness? It's because they love their present lifestyle with the temporary pleasures that it gives more 
than the eternal glory that God wants to give them, the forgiveness of living in the presence of God forever. So let's look at some examples of this. I think it's important that we know how repentance or what it looks like and how it fits into a person's salvation. So consider what Jesus asked of certain people. One example is the rich young ruler. He came up to Jesus and he says, What must I do to be saved? You'd think he'd be close to the kingdom, wouldn't you? You'd think that he'd be ready to accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Why didn't Jesus just say, just pray this prayer? But Jesus knew that he had an idol. It was money. It was wealth. Mammon. And this man was not willing to repent. He was not willing to give up everything for Jesus. He was not willing to make Jesus Lord of his life. And so his money was more important to him than his eternal salvation. Remember what John 3.19 said? People love the darkness more than the light for the actions of evil. On the outside, great guy. I've been obedient to my parents. I'm a good family man. I'm in high regard in the community. But God looked at him and he said, you're wicked. He was an idolater. Okay, He had sin in his heart. And he wasn't willing to give it up. So he walked away sad. He was not saved that day. Then, in contrast, there was Zacchaeus, the tax collector who was ripping people off. He climbed a tree, a sycamore tree. Remember the story? And like the rich young ruler, he was looking for Jesus. But he was different. When Jesus went to his house, he willingly and joyfully changed the way he lived. If he had ripped anyone off, he would give four times the amount back. And... Of his total wealth, he gave half of it to the poor. And that's in Luke chapter 19. So I think that after he'd given half his money away and repaid all the people he ripped off, I reckon he had maybe nothing left. <laughs> so Jesus said about him, salvation has come to his home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son. Of Abraham. So giving half of his money away and changing his ways wasn't what saved him, but it was evidence that his salvation was genuine. Does that make sense? Giving half of his money away and changing his ways wasn't what saved him, but it was evidence that his salvation was genuine. The hard thing for some people to know if, if their profession or faith is real or not, and you will know if it's real if you're willing to give up the old life to live the new life. Christianity is not just adding Jesus to your life. And I've just got a little quote here. For the true Christian who is truly born again, Jesus becomes your life and anything that keeps you from Jesus must go. Sin and compromise must be dealt with. So there are many nice people around, just like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, who are religious and are interested in spiritual things but are unwilling to give up their idol, their sin, the thing in their life which is more important to them than God, the thing that brings them pleasure. God will not take second place in a person's life. A true confession of faith is when a person confesses Jesus as their Lord. Lord means master. He must be the boss. If Jesus was never your master, then he was never your saviour. 
If Jesus was never your master, then he was never your saviour. And consider these following verses from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit or enter the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit or enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Do you notice that? And such were some of you. God looks at the sinners in the world and he says, I love you, I want to save you, I want to change you, I want to transform you. Come to me. Some people are willing to change, some people are not willing to change. Because it says in verse 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's repentance. It's a change of your way of thinking, turning from your sin and turning to God. So for many people, accepting Christ as their Lord and Saviour is a difficult decision. And it should be. It should be a difficult decision. Letting go of your old lifestyle and attitudes is a hard thing to do, but it's so worth it. What God offers is so much better than what the world offers. Now, false teaching. There's false teaching going around, lots of it, that says if you just say a prayer, then you are saved. <laughs> but it's like confessing you're a chicken and becoming a chicken. It doesn't happen that way, does it? But that false teaching didn't apply to the rich young ruler, did it? He could have said a prayer, he wouldn't have been saved. So this false teaching has resulted in many false converts, people who say they're Christians, who may actually really believe that they are Christians, but are actually not Christians. Consider the following verses in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? People who claim to be Christians, they're not all going to go to heaven. Only those who actually what? Do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. That is, those who have repented, changed their ways. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. These people are in church. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. And how does he describe them? You who break God's laws. Okay? They never turned away from that thing in their life, whatever it might be, that was more important to them than God. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect, but we can't have that continual sin. That's not a mark of a born-again Christian. So notice that there were people who thought they were saved, but they weren't. And they were the people who had never repented of their sins. They continued to break God's laws. And one final scripture to bring the point home, it's Jesus teaching on the cost of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and that's found in Luke 14, I'll start at verse 25. A large crowd was following Jesus. Now, remember that a disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. A Christian isn't just someone who calls themselves a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a follower of Christ. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everything else. Your father and your mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. If there's not that change of heart turning from sin, turning from what's important to you, and turning to God, what's important to him, you cannot be 
a disciple of Christ. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. That means you're willing to obey no matter what the consequences. It's a simple way of explaining that. But don't begin until you count the cost. So basically here God is saying, don't say you're a Christian, don't pray for forgiveness until you come to that place where you are certain that, yeah, I'm willing to repent, I'm willing to give up that thing, that idol, that thing that's more important than God. I'm willing to make God more important than that. You can't do it in your own strength, but you need to be willing to do it, and then God will do it for you. You can't do it in your own strength, but you need to be willing to do it, and then God will do it for you. He says, For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there was enough money to finish it? And it, it goes on. In verse 33, You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. So I just want you to say that the decision to become a Christian is not an easy one to make. To repent means to make Jesus number one. He's the Lord or Master of your life. What he says must go. It's like a complete surrender. There is no halfway. You are either in or you are out. You're surrendered or not surrendered. It's like you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. There's no half pregnant. Either you're willing to make Jesus number one in your life or you are not. You must be willing to get rid of anything that is contrary to his will, that is wrong, and surrender everything else to him, being willing to leave it behind. And this is what it means to repent. So, back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. Satan, his time is short. Satan knows that his fate is sealed. There is nothing he can do. From the time that he loses the battle with Michael, he has how long? Three and a half years until he gets locked up for a thousand years. So, just to show you how this works. One hour dispensation chart. Halfway through the seven-year period, here, he has this battle in heaven, he gets kicked out of heaven and for the last three and a half years he causes havoc. This period here, this last three and a half years is called the Great Tribulation. It's a time of intense persecution and suffering for the Jewish people and for any other believer. Satan then gets locked up for the thousand years, he's locked up in the bottomless pit for the thousand years, that's the millennial reign. Jesus rules the world with a righteous rule and Revelation tells us for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, he's released for one final battle. And all the people who were born in the thousand years, who chose not to believe, gather around Satan. And again, it's a choice. Choose God or choose Satan. Choose good, choose evil. They all go to the lake of fire and then new heavens and new earth. And Satan and his demons are in the lake of fire. So I was thinking about what it's like. Satan knows that his time is short. <laughs> Marissa was trying to catch a snake yesterday. She did catch a snake. And she had it trapped under the shovel. But she couldn't quite kill it because the sand was soft and the shovel was going into the dirt. She thought she had it. But then she pulled the shovel up and it started coming towards her. So she's whack, whack, whack. And... That's a bit like what Satan's like now. His ego's been bruised. He knows he's going to be in the lake of fire for eternity, being in torment. And he's like this snake that's striking again and again and again. 
He's like a frightened, cornered horse, extremely dangerous and ready to attack out of fear. He's not just a lion, but he's now an angry lion looking for those he can devour. 1 Peter 5 8. And according to prophecy, God will give Satan great leeway or freedom to have his way and to rule the earth. The last three and a half years, what the Bible calls a great tribulation, Satan is given the authority to explicitly demand that he be worshipped as God, and he will kill anyone who doesn't comply. It's not just taking the mark that condemns you, you know, take the mark of the beast, you've probably heard about that, but along with taking the mark, you must worship Satan. That's part of it. So this is a choice that every person will be forced to make during the tribulation. Worship the true God, Jesus, or worship the false God, the false Messiah, the Antichrist, who represents Satan, who is possessed by Satan. And it says that in Revelation 13, 7-10, It was granted to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints, the tribulation believers, and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But if your name is in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, then you're not going to worship him. You see, there's only two options. There's no other religions here. It's just one or the other. It's, it's like Adam and Eve in the garden. You trust God or you trust Satan. And it's come down to that very clear choice. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And it says, here is the patience and faith of the saints. So you have to be patient living in those days because you probably will be killed. And verse 13, moving on, it says, Now when the dragon saw, the devil saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He persecuted Israel. Why? Because... The Messiah came through Israel. Now there's many examples of Satan persecuting the Israeli nation, the Jewish nation. Egypt, Pharaoh tried to kill all the male babies. Remember that? Haman, in the Old Testament, at the time of the Mede and Persian Empire, tried to wipe out all the Jews in all the provinces of that worldwide empire at the time. Herod tried to kill Jesus and many of the baby boys around the area of Bethlehem. And the last 2,000 years, the Jews have gone through multiple cycles of persecution and violence. And, you know, the latest one, the worst one, was the Holocaust of 6 million Jews being killed. But in comparison, all that pain and suffering will be nothing compared to the fury and evil that the Antichrist will unleash on the Jews at the halfway point of the tribulation. This is the consequence of Satan losing his battle with Michael the archangel. And Jesus talks about this too, just linking these scriptures together. Matthew 24, 15-22 Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, or the holy of holies, whoever reads, let him understand. Okay, what's he talking about? The abomination of desolation. It's when the Antichrist goes into the Jewish temple and desecrates. He puts an idol where the Ark of the Covenant should be and then sacrifices the pig and they can't offer sacrifices to God in the temple anymore. And that will 
stay like that until the end of the tribulation. So then it says, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. So there's a change. Something happens at the halfway point, and Jesus is referring to this. He says, you need to get out of there. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Again, it's talking to the Jews. For then there will be great tribulation. This is where we get this phrase, the great tribulation. Not just the tribulation, but the great tribulation. It's the last three and a half years. Such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus refers to this prophecy in Daniel. It's Daniel 9.27. And he says, whoever reads, let him understand. We need to understand prophecy to understand what Jesus is talking about. Daniel 9.27 tells us exactly when this event takes place. It tells us when the tribulation starts. It tells us what happens halfway through, three and a half years in. And so Jesus, by referring to this prophecy in Daniel, is basically giving us the very time when these events will happen. We know that it will happen halfway through the tribulation. All right. Revelation 12, 13 and 14. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So a time is one year, times is two years, it's two lots of one, and half a time is half a year. So how much is that? Three and a half years. How long is the tribulation? Seven years. What's half a seven? Three and a half. Okay. Hope the mass isn't too hard for you. <laughs> now, is this referred to in other places in the Bible? Yes, this is not an isolated prophecy. This is prophesied in two other places. The context is in reference to the Antichrist. And you'll see the context as you read them. So, Daniel 7, 25. He would defy the Most Holy, that's God, and oppress the holy people of the Most High, that's Israel. Remember, he's going to turn against them. He's going to persecute the woman. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws. And they will be placed under his control for how long? A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. And we read in chapter 11 that the nation of Israel will be trampled underfoot for the last three and a half years. Or 42 months, I think it might have said. Three and a half years. So the other reference that talks about how long this will be is Daniel 12, 7. The man dressed in linen who was standing above the river raised both hands toward heaven and took a solemn oath by the one who lives forever, saying, It will go on for a time, times, and half a time. When the shattering of the holy people has finally come to an end, all these things will have happened. The shattering of the holy people. The Antichrist is going to pound the nation of Israel, but God is going to supernaturally step in and protect a remnant from the nation of Israel, a large remnant, one-third of them, we're going to find out later. And he's going to look after them in this particular place. So I'm going through this so you can see it's not an isolated thing, but the whole Bible actually talks about this. It all fits in very nicely. 
So verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So to me it's interesting that God allows Satan to overcome the saints, that is the believing Gentiles and Jews who are not living in Israel, but he goes to great lengths to save and protect the nation of Israel. Why? It's predicted. God said he would. Now, where are they going to be protected? Well, we find the first answer in Daniel chapter 11, verse 41. It says, He shall also enter the glorious land that's the nation of Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Amnon. So the context of Daniel 11.41 is the Antichrist in the last days in the battle of Armageddon. This is his battle plan. This is where he's going to go and defeat these countries before he turns his guns on Jesus. So where are these places? Well, they're on the screen here. Here's Moab. Here's Edom. And notice all the mountains. Where did Jesus say to run to? Run to the mountains. Petra is in here somewhere. We visited there about this time last year. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> Climbed around. So the Jews living around here in Jerusalem and that, they need to flee from here all the way around down into here. And God's going to protect them as they go down from this area of Israel down to here. So there's the Dead Sea, there's the Sea of Galilee, and down further is the, the Red Sea with oh, the Gulf of Aqaba. So after the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus comes back, he destroys the enemies. But notice that Satan will be unable to conquer or enter the countries of Edom and Moab. Now, there's another verse that indicates that the country of Moab is a part of the area where God will protect his people, and that is Isaiah 16.4-5. Let our Jewish refugees, I'll put that in brackets because that's the context, let our Jewish refugees stay among you, Moab, the country of Moab. Hide them from our enemies until the terror is past, when oppression and destruction have ended and enemy raiders have disappeared. Then God will establish one of David's descendants as king. He will rule with mercy and truth. He will always do what is just and be eager to do what is right. So, have a look at that. Hide them from our enemies until the terror is past. And when the enemies have gone, God will establish one of David's descendants as king. Who's that? Who's the descendant of David that's going to be king forever? It's Jesus. This can only be an end-time prophecy. It fits perfectly with Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. So God protects the nation of Israel until he dispatches or deals with the Antichrist. And then he, Jesus, the descendant of King David, rules the world with a righteous rule, and the Revelation tells us for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign. Now, I'm not going to go into it now for lack of time, but Selah or Bosra is another name for Petra, and there's other verses which speak about that being the place of refuge for the people of Israel. 
But what I've done so far is narrowed it down to the country of Moab, where the city of Petra is. And as I said before, in Matthew twenty four sixteen, Jesus specifically told them to flee to the mountains. So in this scene of satanic persecution, we have the divine intervention of God. And the woman, Israel, is described as being given two wings of a great eagle in order to enable her to fly into the wilderness, into her place. It's a figure of speech. It's just another sign. Where do we get it from? Well, it goes back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So what did God do? He protected them from the Egyptian armies and from any other threat. And he kept them close to himself. I bore you on eagles' wings. It's a place of safety. So, verse 14 also implies that there is some supernatural care because it says where she is nourished for a time and times half a time for three and a half years. I reckon, this is just my opinion, it doesn't specify this in the scripture as far as I know, that God will reintroduce manna because he's going to feed these people. So it's one possibility. It's just a speculation that I have that God will start the manna again and he'll provide for them just like he did in the wilderness for those 40 years. He will nourish them. He will not let them go hungry. He's going to look after them. He's going to give them food and water and protection just like he did when they were going through the wilderness. And there's other passages that talk about eagles' wings too. So, Another question is, how many will God save? Now, according to Zechariah 13, 8-9, it says two-thirds of Israel in the land will perish and one-third will make it through. So let's just say there were three million Jews living in Israel at the time. About one million will make it through to Petra or to Moab and two million won't. Okay, So let's just read that scripture in Zechariah 13, 8-9 and it shall come to pass in all the land, that is the land of Israel, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. Again, this fits with the times of the persecution. Two-thirds of the nation of Israel will be wiped out, but one-third will be supernaturally protected by God. This is the one-third who turn to God, who repent and follow him. Whether it's at the time or later on in Moab, it's not specific about when it happens, but they do eventually. And moving on, Revelation 12, 15 to 16. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood, notice the word like, after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. So you might have this picture in your head of the Antichrist opening his mouth and a huge amount of water coming out and drowning all the Israelis. No. Let's look at references in the scriptures where it talks about a flood representing an army, an army of people. Isaiah fifty nine nineteen. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. 
When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. So the enemy comes in like a flood. It's not a flood of water, but it's just coming in like a flood. A flood is destructive. It destroys everything in its path. Jeremiah 46, 7-9. Who is this coming up like a flood, whose waters move like the rivers? Egypt, the armies of Egypt, rises up like a flood, and its waters move like the rivers. And he says, I will go up and cover the earth. I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth. So, this is an interpretation here. What's the flood? It's an army. The Egyptian army is described as a flood, as a launching a military attack. Now, verse 16 then tells us how the advancing army, if it was an advancing army, is defeated. And I think this is literal. I think the earth opening up is literal. And you say, oh, hang on, has that happened before? Yes, it has. The children of Israel were rebelling against Moses' leadership. What happens? In Numbers 16, 27 and on, And Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things that I have done, for I have not done them on my own. If these men, these rebels, die a natural death, or if nothing unusual happens, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord does something entirely new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them and all their belongings, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have shown contempt for the Lord. He had hardly finished speaking the words, that's Moses, when the ground suddenly split open beneath them. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the men along with their households and all their followers who were standing with them, and everything they owned. So they went down alive into the grave, along with all their belongings. The earth closed over them, and they all vanished from among the people of Israel. Amazing, eh? They vanished. All the people around them fled when they heard their screams. The earth will swallow us too, they cried. Wow. Can you imagine that at the time? Well, there's no reason why God can't do it again. This army that's chasing the Israelites is an evil army. God can just open the earth, swallow them, close it up. What are you going to do now, Satan? (laughs) Alright, verse 17. Last verse. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Israel is tucked away and untouchable, protected, nurtured in Moab, Bosra, Petra, Selah. And then Satan turns all his guns on the other believers, the Jews and Gentiles who believe during the seven-year tribulation period. So heads will roll, literally, most probably. Okay, Here's some scriptures that talk about how bad this will be. Revelation 14, verse 3. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Lord. They are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. So basically it's saying, you're much better off dead. If you're a believer, you're better off dead, because it's going to be horrible living in that time. And here's a quote. It is precisely when Satan has lost the battle for the souls of saints in heaven that he begins the fruitless persecution of their bodies. He's just out to destroy them. He knows he can't make them go to hell. They're saved but he wants to destroy them anyway. And Revelation 13, 7. 
it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the whole world. Now, to overcome them, it doesn't mean that the beast, the Antichrist, Satan, can overcome the faith of the saints, but he can destroy their physical lives. And by appearances, he destroys the cause of God's people on earth. So this is a full-fledged demonic war, a physical war on believers. That's his goal, is to kill, physically kill, anyone who is a believer. And that's why death will be a welcome relief from the intense persecution that this Satan-filled or possessed Antichrist will force on believers during this time. And a word of encouragement and exhortation to finish from Jesus, Luke 21, 34-36. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day, the tribulation, come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare, as like a trap, on those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So if you are saved, the blood of Jesus cleansed you, you are counted worthy, you will go up in the rapture. Just make sure that you've made things right with God. Otherwise, you'll be left behind. Father, we thank you for all these scriptures that just mesh in so well with each other and basically just paint one big, clear picture of events that will happen during the tribulation period. There's more about the tribulation period and what happens than any other time period in history. So help us to understand this correctly and to just realize that you've got everything planned out. You've got everything under control. And the application for us is that it doesn't matter if things don't go well for us on this earth. We have a better life waiting for us. We, as Christians, if we are truly saved, will go to be with you forever when we die. We have nothing to fear because you are near. Someone told me that. So I just thank you for the promises you've given us, Lord, for the examples of faith that we see in the people who are going to go through these times. They're not going to be scared when they die. They're going to be brave. They're going to be courageous. They're going to be looking up to heaven. I'm imagining when looking to Jesus, like Stephen, as he was being stoned and saying, Lord, receive me into your kingdom. And... uh Forgive these people who don't know what they're doing. Lord, we just thank you that your grace can give us the courage to do the things that we can't do on our own, to change, to repent, to live a life that pleases you. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to examine our lives, and if there's any wicked way in us, help us to turn to you and turn away from those wicked ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.